From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Putin has been waiting for the opportunity to take his move to show that you can't ignore Russia, that Russia has power in its region, that Russia is a necessary player. I think we've seen this in Africa and the Middle East, too. Um, And to make Putin go down in history as the man who made Russia great again. That's Kimberly Martin. She's a political science professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and a close observer of Russian affairs for over 30 years. As tensions flare in Ukraine, and there's much uncertainty about what's to come, Martin joins me to help us get clarity on the big questions raised by the crisis. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS, we are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. Hey folks, before I get to your questions, I have a very exciting announcement. On Thursday evening, March 31st, we're bringing Stay Tuned to New York City's Town Hall for our first in-person show since before the pandemic. Yes, I said in person. I'll be joined by actor, writer, producer, and former White House aide Cal Penn, who'll speak with me about his new memoir, You Can't Be Serious, and so much more. As always, I'll be answering audience questions and reflecting on the latest news making the headlines. You won't want to miss it. Join me, Cal, and your fellow fans by heading to cafe.com slash events to get your tickets. That's cafe.com slash events. I really hope to see you there. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Juan, who asks, what was your reaction to the verdict in the federal trial of the three men who killed Ahmad Arbery? My first reaction was I was gratified. I thought it was a righteous case. I thought it was a good case. I thought the Department of Justice prosecutors did a good job. Of course, as everyone who listens to the show and follows the news knows, the three men who were accused in state court of causing the death of Ahmad Arbery were already convicted themselves and face life in prison. So what's the significance of the federal trial? Well, I think a few things. One, it's basically a backup insurance conviction against the three men, Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and William Bryan. So that if something still goes awry with the state court prosecution, there's an appeal and the appeal is successful and the verdicts are overturned, which I don't think is likely, but is certainly, I guess, possible. Even if it's a remote possibility, those three men will not be going free because of the federal conviction. Second, I think the trial and the verdict is very important as an expression of the communities and the country's feeling about hate crimes. We often talk about the purpose of the law and enforcing statutes 
and holding people accountable as a method of deterrence. But there are some kinds of things that we have in this country. And I think hate crimes go to this point sort of more aggressively than any kind of other prosecution. It expresses the distaste and dissatisfaction and derision of the community with respect to certain kinds of conduct. A murder is a murder, a robbery is a robbery, an assault is an assault. But we have decided in many states in the country, and certainly at the federal level, that if you engage in that conduct because of racial hatred, racial animus, that's a separate crime and a special crime. And the outrage of the community is expressed through that prosecution. So I think that's important also. And then third, I think the case and the verdict is very important as an expression of the Justice Department's renewed emphasis on stress on and aggressiveness with respect to civil rights violations. We're seeing that also in the case against the officers involved in the killing of George Floyd. For a long time, particularly under the last administration, it seems like civil rights enforcement was something of an afterthought. It didn't happen as much. So I think Merrick Garland and all the folks at the Department of Justice who care about civil rights and cared enough to bring this case should be commended for it. Now, my other reaction to the federal trial is how different it was in tone and substance from the state trial. You all may remember that not long ago, I had on the chief prosecutor in the case, Linda Donikoski. And I asked her a few times about the reasoning behind her decision and the other prosecutor's decisions not to emphasize race, even though, as everyone talked about it, as the media talked about it, and as we talked about it on the podcast, race was central. She decided for various trial tactical reasons not to emphasize it, in part because she said it was so obvious and you didn't have to hit the jury over the head with it. And it was a successful strategy. The federal hate crimes trial, of course, was very different. And in fact, by definition, had to focus on race, had to focus on racial animus, had to focus on the racial epithets that all three men who were on trial were shown to have engaged in. In fact, the racism of the three men on trial was so irrefutable that a lawyer for one of them referred to racism as, quote, among the lowest of human emotions, end quote. So in the end, two very different trials with similar results, different but important, and I'm glad they both ended the way they did. This question comes in an email from Melissa, who asks, will DOJ investigate how classified documents ended up with Trump at Mar-a-Lago? That question, of course, is generally prompted by the reporting and the statements by the National Archives that classified material was indeed among the 15 boxes of stuff that the archives obtained from Mar-a-Lago, or is in the process of obtaining from Mar-a-Lago. But I imagine that the question is more specifically prompted by a reporter's question to Attorney General Merrick Garland and Merrick Garland's response. The reporter is Matt Zapatosky of the Washington Post, who posted a tweet as follows. I asked A.G. Garland if the Justice Department was investigating how classified material made its way to Mar-a-Lago, which the archives confirmed last week. He said the department would look at the facts and the law, but didn't answer when I asked if that meant they were investigating. The direct quote from Merrick Garland is this, quote, As the archivist said in the letter that was sent to the Congress, the National Archives has informed the Justice Department of this and communicated with it. And we will do what we always do under these circumstances. Look at the facts and the law and take it from there, end quote. Now, I think that's a pretty decent sign that the matter will be investigated. Mostly the matter is likely to be investigated because on its face, as Joyce Vance and I discussed on the Insider Podcast this week, it meets all the criteria for opening up an investigation. The fact that there was classified material that existed and was retained in a non-classified setting by a former government official, namely Donald Trump, 
is the kind of thing that the department generally investigates and investigates pretty thoroughly. There's case after case after case. Some examples include General Petraeus, former National Security Advisor Sandy Berger, and a host of others who, in similar circumstances, were investigated. Attorney General Garland's answer reminds me a little bit of Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco's answer when asked the question about the fake electors that have been reported upon in recent weeks. When there's a referral, obviously the Justice Department is duty-bound to take a look and take some steps. Whether or not that's a full-blown investigation in every case is unclear. I think the answer that Merrick Garland gave was on the vague side, because that's the way he operates. He doesn't want to give too much, doesn't want to show too much of the Department of Justice's hand. But I think the underlying facts make it very clear that this is a thing that necessitates an investigation, whether or not the archives made such a referral. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. President Biden announced sanctions on Russia in his address to the nation on Wednesday. Over the last few days, we've seen much of the playbook that Secretary Blinken laid out last week in the United Nations Security Council come to pass. A major increase in military provocations and false flag events along the line of contact in the Donbass. Dramatically staged, conveniently on-camera meeting of Putin's Security Council to grandstand for the Russian public. And now, political provocation of recognizing sovereign Ukrainian territory as so-called independent republics in clear violation, again, of international law. As the world watches Putin's next moves in Ukraine, I am joined this week by international security specialist Kimberly Martin. Among her many professional honors, from 2015 until 2019, she served as the founding director of the program on U.S.-Russia relations at Columbia University's Harriman Institute. In July 2020, she testified before the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Europe, Eurasia, Energy, and the Environment. Professor Kimberly Martin, thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me on. So as I was saying before we started taping, thanks for joining on short notice. There's a lot of news this week with respect to Ukraine. I should point out to folks that events keep developing at a pretty fast pace. We are recording this on Wednesday, February 23rd at lunchtime, depending on what, <laughs> depending on when you eat lunch. But it's uh, approaching the noon hour. 
So I don't know how much will change by the time this episode drops, but I am very much hoping that you will help us understand a lot of the things that are in motion, how we got to this point, and what we might expect in the future. Are you game for that? I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. Let's begin, since we have some time, and we don't always hear this on cable news, with the background here. How did we get to this point? How is, how is Putin's activity with respect to Ukraine similar to or different from the annexation of Crimea in 2014 or what he did in Georgia in 2008? Is this completely different or is this something that we should have expected? So there are a variety of different explanations for why Putin has chosen to do what he has chosen to do right now. Um, the most important thing to keep in mind is that there was nothing happening in the outside environment that should have provoked him to take this action at this particular time. So to answer that question, we really have to try to get inside Putin's head. And Let's do um, that. Let's do that. <laughs> okay, so I think there, there are four possible explanations that are out there, and I'll tell you which ones I think are the most likely, but any of the four are possible. So the first possibility is that he's truly a Russian ethnic nationalist. And he started talking in this way in July when he had this major article appear in a Russian newspaper um, that essentially said that Ukraine was a child of Russia, that Russia had created Ukraine, um, and that Ukraine did not have a separate ethnic identity from Russia. Russia. And we heard him repeat those statements when he was justifying what he was doing yesterday. And so it is possible that ethnic nationalism is what is motivating him and that he honestly believes that Russia is the big brother to Ukraine, that Russia Ukra uh, created Ukraine, and that that's what's motivating him. I doubt that that's correct for a couple of reasons. First of all, the history is just false. He, right. he must know that he's making it up. But secondly, it doesn't fit his whole time in office. He's been in office now for more than 20 years, and ethnic nationalism doesn't seem to be what has been driving him that whole time. Although he did say something similar in 2014 when he was justifying his takeover of Crimea. So that's possible. Can we just pause on that for one second? Because sure. you said something interesting. You said, you know, for that to be the explanation, you don't buy it necessarily because it's not true. It's a false narrative. Does, does Putin believe all that? Is, is that necessary? To, put, to Putin's conduct and belief system, does he have to believe in the truth of the things he says? No. I mean, we have to remember that Putin is a former KGB operative. He has spent his entire life working in the intelligence services. He is very good at creating false narratives in all of his political interventions in various places around the world, including the United States. And propaganda just comes second nature to him. So he certainly could be spouting this without believing a word of it. Okay. What's the second possibility? Second possibility is that people like John Mearsheimer are correct and that Putin is really frightened about NATO enlargement and he felt that he had no option except to take this action to stop NATO enlargement from including Ukraine. There are a bunch of problems with that explanation. The first is that nobody thought that Ukraine was going to be in NATO anytime soon if it ever is in NATO. And in fact, the last time that anybody who had any power in the West talked about this possibility was in 2008. And eight under the administration of George W. Bush. So there was nothing in the immediate environment that suggested that Ukraine was about to join NATO. And even more than that, when we look back at the history of NATO enlargement that started in the early 1990s, we know that Russia was unhappy about NATO enlargement, but the, the evidence doesn't indicate that they thought that it was a military threat. 
And a couple of things to keep in mind about that. Russia has a huge number of nuclear weapons that could wipe out an American city in 30 minutes if that's what they wish to do. So nobody is ever going to invade Russian territory. And then in addition to that, throughout the 1990s and the 2000s, when NATO enlargement was happening bit by bit, we did not see any evidence of the Russian military repositioning itself close to its Western borders, which is what we would have expected if they really believed that there was going to be a NATO invasion that was coming across their borders. Um, so, so why then can I, can I ask you this? Mm-hmm. Explain to non-diplomatic folks, okay. if all this is true, what you're saying, why wouldn't NATO members just say forthrightly, Ukraine membership in NATO is not on the table for the foreseeable future? Well, that's a good question. And I think we have to remember that in the original NATO founding document um, from the late 1940s, it says that people can join NATO in the future, states can join NATO in the future if they share NATO's goals and are able to contribute to NATO's defenses. And so from the beginning, there was never any belief that it would be limited to its original membership. Um, You know, it expanded during the Cold War to include both Greece and Turkey. It included to expand Eastern Germany when West and East Germany unified. Um, And so um, it's not novel that NATO uh, would enlarge. Um, And in fact, in 1990, Russia signed off on a diplomatic uh, arrangement, the NATO-Russia founding agreement, um, that essentially recognized that NATO would be enlarging. And so they they implicitly accepted it from their diplomatic status themselves. So why not take it off the table for now to take the talking point away from Putin and maybe take away some of his reasoning? I think there's a couple reasons for that. The most important one is that I don't think we want to give in to Putin. I don't think we want to send the message by we, meaning the West and NATO. I don't think that we want to send them the message that if you bully us, we will give in uh, because that just encourages him to engage in more bullying. And, you know, it's sort of a principle. Once this is in place, uh, NATO wants to allow anybody who truly has an institutionalized liberal democracy um, and who has the ability economically and in terms of its defenses to contribute to the Western alliance to be free to join. And that would include, by the way, Finland and Sweden, um, which have been talking more and more about the possibility of joining NATO as they have watched Russian aggression happening. They've been completely neutral up until now, but they have not completely dismissed the idea. It's probably also true, is it not, that if we had taken the prospect of Ukraine uh, joining NATO off the table, they wouldn't have had any material effect on Putin's actions because it's a pretext. Yeah, I think that's true. I don't think that this is what actually is motivating Putin. I really think it's an excuse rather than... All right, so I can't wait to hear what number three is. Um, Number three is the one that I think is most likely, which is that... So you're going to put the most likely one third, not fourth. Well, the fourth one also contributes to it, but I think the third is the most important. All right. Um, So, um, you know, Putin was a KGB operative in Eastern Germany at the time that German unification happened. And he really, truly felt humiliated by the fact that the Soviet Union lost the Cold War at that time. He felt humiliated when the Soviet Union fell apart. Um, He, you know, is on record as having said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical tragedy. And, you know, he had... Spent his early life and his entire career 
believing that the United States and NATO were the greatest enemies. And then he watched in the 1990s in what we have sometimes called the U.S. unipolar moment. Well, all of a sudden, the United States was, without question, the most powerful country in the world. And it threw its weight around in terms of, you know, dominating United Nations peace operations in the Balkans, in Bosnia, in Kosovo, in terms of the intervention in Afghanistan and the intervention in Iraq, in terms of what happened in Libya. Libya with the overthrow of Gaddafi. And so Putin just was watching all of this. And I think you can make a really good argument that he was biding his time. He was building up the economic potential of Russia through um, his oil and natural gas sales abroad. Uh, we saw a spike in oil prices that really brought a lot of profit into the Russian state. And at that point, he um, uh, paid off Russian debt to put the Russian economy in very good shape. And that allowed him over the past 15 years um, to really be concentrating on building up the Russian military and making it a very strong fighting force again after the Russian military had also been in a collapsed state um, as the Cold War had ended and, and independent Russia came into place. And so I think the, the strongest argument is that Putin has been waiting for the opportunity to take his move to show that you can't ignore Russia, that Russia has power in its region, that Russia is a necessary player. I think we've seen this in Africa and the Middle East too. Um, and to make Putin go down in history as the man who made Russia great again. And so I really think that that's the most likely explanation. And it's not opposed to the idea of ethnic nationalism. It's not opposed to the idea of being against NATO enlargement, but it's just the most likely explanation that fits everything that he's done. And then the fourth explanation is what we might call diversionary warfare, which is that he's trying to take domestic attention off of the problems that Russia is facing. Russia's economy is not doing as well as he had hoped it would, that it was doing, say, five or 10 years ago. Russia has been really badly hit by COVID. All the evidence indicates that the actual number of deaths from COVID may be as much as four or five times higher than Russia has admitted. And so there is an argument to be made that he wants to take the Russian public's attention off of his own domestic failures by once again having this great foreign policy triumph that he can talk about. Um, and some people have gone even further and argued that maybe what's really happening is that he um, wants to have a, a, a greater degree of domestic crackdown, um, uh, put more people in prison, uh, prevent more protests, put more constraints on the Russian internet, for example, and that by having this excuse of a foreign enemy, it um, makes it easier for him to justify this to the Russian public. So let's go back to explanation three. Okay. And dig deeper in that for a couple of minutes. This idea of humiliation at the dismantling of the Soviet Union, how much of that sentiment is shared by the Russian people and has that evolved? And does it, and does it matter? Does it matter to him? So last question first, you know, he there, there are not free elections in Russia. He has demonstrated through his use of the intelligence and security forces that he really controls the Russian domestic space. There's been massive election fraud over and over again. So he doesn't really have to worry about public opinion in the way that a Western Democratic leader would have to worry about it. But he still has to worry about it in the sense that he has to make sure that he is irreplaceable. Because you can bet that anytime there is an authoritarian system, there are people in the background saying, why is he in charge and not me? And so he wants to make sure that he has a sufficient amount of public opinion, that he is still sufficiently popular, that nobody believes it's a good time to try to move in and replace him. So that's, that's sort of the answer to your first question. In terms of how the Russian public feels, in the 1990s, there was lots of hope in Russia um, that there would be some new relationship 
relationship between Russia and the West. And I think that there was general disappointment across the Russian public that that didn't come to be. And there is general sentiment across the Russian public um, that NATO enlargement was just not taking Russian interests into account and that Russia has been sidelined in the international system. And we saw that in 2014, uh, when Putin took over Crimea, which was part of Ukraine, and the movement in Russia was called Krim Nash, Crimea is ours. Um, Russia was getting back this piece of territory that had traditionally belonged to it. And I think a lot of the sentiment in the public at that time was genuinely in favor of what Putin had accomplished um, by taking back Crimea for Russia. So I don't think that that has continued up until the current day. You know, I think it's always true that people care most about the economy, no matter what country they're in, and that people care about their families. And, you know, health issues have been really big in Russia, even if they're not really being publicly discussed as much as they, they would be. Everybody knows that COVID. Yeah, but national pride is not nothing, right? <laughs> it's not nothing, exactly. So fair to say, or do we know, to ask it another way, that Putin has substantial domestic support for his maneuvering in Ukraine? Uh, he probably does not have substantial domestic support for what has happened so far. And there are a couple of things that differentiate this from what happened in Crimea. Um, what happened in Crimea was almost bloodless. I think something like three people total were killed in the, the Russian takeover of Crimea. And if Putin chooses to have Russian military forces um, continue to participate in the conflict that's happening in eastern Ukraine, there will be Russian forces who are killed. And people don't want to see that. They are not interested in going to war and having their, especially sons, be killed over something that they don't really see the importance of. And then the second thing that we have to keep in mind is that there's still a lot of family connections and other kinds of network connections between people who live in Russia and people who live in Ukraine. And so people in Russia do not see Ukraine as an enemy. And I think Putin was going to have a difficult time if he moves further into Ukraine in trying to justify what he's doing to the, to the Russian public. So I'm a little confused by that. If the goal per explanation three, is that because of the humiliation, we want to rise up again and be back on the path to the power and stateliness and respect that the Soviet Union got. Doesn't that have to be the view of people you know, beyond Putin himself? In other words, to be successful at that, for that gambit to make any sense, doesn't it by definition need popular support? So this is getting into a really interesting point that a lot of people have been raising. It's not clear whether Putin at the moment is getting good information and intelligence about what is really happening in the world. Um, because of COVID, he has been even more cut off than he was earlier. Um, he has always been somebody who has made decisions using a very small group of supporters. He said that publicly about his decision to take uh, Crimea in 2014. We know, for example, that the finance ministry, um, economic um, consequences were not really considered by the group of security officials who took that decision in February 2014. What we have seen during COVID is that Putin seems to be even more cut off, even from his closest advisors. And so there has been information released. I don't know how accurate it is, but a lot of people believe it, 
that before anybody has been allowed to even be in the same room as Putin um, among his domestic advisors, they've had to go through a two-week quarantine. Um, and he's been really terrified of electronic monitoring. And so he has not been using internet connections with people. And so the question is, if he's not seeing people in person because he's afraid of COVID and he's not using the internet, exactly what kind of information is he getting? And so I think it's possible that he thinks he's doing one thing, but he's doing it without really adequate information to be making good decisions. You know, much is made of the question of whether or not various leaders, and in this case, we're talking about Putin, obviously, whether or not he's acting rationally. And there's a distinction that I think gets lost sometimes. And sometimes people will say someone is being irrational. What they really mean is they're being unreasonable. And reasonableness has to do with fairness and has to do with, you know, proper conduct and mutual respect. Uh, what is rational can absolutely justify bloodlust and war and lying and all sorts of other things. Is Putin either irrational or unreasonable or both? So being rational means sort of a couple of things in a social science typical definition of rationality. It means that you have goals and that you're taking actions to get those goals met, whatever their goals may be, and that you're doing it after having a complete search for information. And so if he's not getting good information, he may think that he is taking rational action, goal-oriented action, and actually be making huge mistakes and huge miscalculations because he doesn't have adequate information. In terms of the reasonableness, I think, you know, what he's doing is, is something that's very hard to justify, both to the Russian public in terms of what it is actually going to accomplish, um, and then also just for the long-term health of the Russian state, because he is, is really, and, and this gets into the question of sanctions, he, if he continues to move forward, he is going to face some, some really big economic um, problems. And we know that the sanctions that have already been in place against Russia, even if they're not having immediate short-term effects that some people might have hoped that they were, um, have really put the long-term Russian oil and natural gas industries in not good places in comparison to their Western counterparts. Um, and so I think, I think the real questions about that. Yeah, I heard somebody comment that what Putin really wants is not the resurrection of the old USSR, the Soviet Union, but a return to the old Russian Empire. Is that a silly observation or is there anything to that? Well, it fits geographically, and it fits a little bit about what we know about him, which is that he is a student of Russian history, and he does not really see himself as uh, acting in the Soviet tradition. So, for example, when he talked about uh, uh, Ukraine having been artificially created by Russia, he said it was Lenin's decision to do that, um, right? So he's not seeing himself as acting in Lenin's tradition. And so a lot of people have argued that he really sees himself as acting in a czarist tradition and sort of a 19th century tradition. And certainly large chunks of Ukraine were in the Russian Empire, although not all of Ukraine was. Part of it was also in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, in the Polish Empire. Um, but moving into Ukraine uh, would indicate moving back towards where the Russian Empire was. It's interesting. So we spent some time in Putin's brain. <laughs> and these explanations uh, that you've ranked, that seems totally reasonable to me. What My first question about how you deal with that is, do you think that Joe Biden and the people around him generally have the same sense of Putin's brain and his motivations and intentions that you've just described? I think they do. And I actually think that uh, the decisions that Biden has taken so far in relationship to this crisis are really 
good decisions in terms of moving very slowly, in terms of making sure that there is strong support from U.S. allies, not merely in Europe, but we saw today, including Japan and Australia, for whatever steps are taken, making sure that they're sort of moving in lockstep and they're demonstrating to Putin that this isn't just even the West, that it is in the entire group of U.S. allies that are acting in this way. Um, and I think um, we can talk about sanctions if you like. I think that the oh, way- we're going to talk about sanctions. Okay. The way that he <laughs> we're has, getting to that. Okay, the way that he has been approaching sanctions, I think, is a very good good way of doing it. But if it's true that they have a good handle on Putin's brain and his motivations, is there some argument that there were things that they could have done earlier, and that the NATO allies could have done earlier to prevent this situation from getting out of hand? No. And and I think that, you know, if, if this explanation is that Putin has just been waiting for the opportunity to do this, there's nothing that the U.S. could have done to prevent it because Russia has nuclear weapons. And so there is no way that the United States wants to get involved in a military confrontation with Russia. And I think when we're talking about sanctions in some of the mainstream uh, U.S. media and also among Republicans in Congress, there's been a misunderstanding of what sanctions are. So you've heard this argument, um, wouldn't putting sanctions in place be a deterrent to Russia? And the answer is no. Once you put the sanctions in place, you've lost the deterrent value because what a deterrent is supposed to do is to provide a threat that if you take an action, here will be the consequences. If you put those consequences in place, then you have nothing to hold over Russia's head. So that's an argument for rolling sanctions, right? Yes, exactly. And, which is why President Biden announced this week what he called the first tranche right. of sanctions. But, it, but it's interesting because if you're trying to prevent a, a full bore invasion, how do you think is the right way to think about the balance of, of how you front load the sanctions versus how much you keep to the side in your back pocket for after the full bore invasion happens? How do you think about that balance? Right. Um, and so the, the thing to keep in mind is that the when you're talking about putting sanctions policies in place, it's not just trying to deter Russia. It's also trying to get the allies behind you, which means that if you move too quickly and the allies aren't moving with you, then you have this sense of a disconnect that Putin could exploit. Um, if he sees fissures in the NATO alliance, for example, um, he could move in and try to use his own economic pressures against Western action. We have to remember that Europe in particular is much more tightly connected to the Russian economy than the United States is. So that's sort of the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing is um, uh, sanctions never go into place overnight. Um, and so what we saw with the sanctions that were announced uh, yesterday afternoon by Biden is that they will go into effect in 30 days or so. And when we're thinking about that, um, you know, we don't want to have too much harm come to Western economic interests that have been involved in Russia. So you want to give people warning time so that they can withdraw and put their own house in order so that they don't have too much blowback on Western economies. And one of the reasons to move in a step-by-step -step fashion is also to send a message to Western investors in Russia, which there have been, um, you know, up until the present time, that this is the first step and that things are going to get worse, to give them some warning time and to also convince them to pull out their resources, because by pulling out their resources, they're putting extra pressure on Russia, even without the official sanctions policy. So we saw that happen in 2014. When the sanctions started rolling forward, a lot of Western investors changed their mind about what they were going to do in Russia, even before the sanctions went into place, because they were so afraid that the sanctions would be coming. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Kimberly Martin 
after this. Do you have a view as to what the most effective types of sanctions are? I hear a lot of people talking about the oligarchs, hit the oligarchs, uh, and, and maybe even Putin's own financial positions to the extent that they're known or knowable. And what will really put pressure on Putin is if his cronies aren't able to travel to the French Riviera or aren't, aren't able to have access to their yachts, you know, that kind of thing. Does that make any sense or not? Um, no, and I don't think that's the primary purpose for putting the pressure on the oligarchs. I think there was talk about that several years ago when the original pressure on some of the oligarchs came into being. But what we saw happen at that time in 2014, 2015, is that it actually pulled the oligarchs closer to Putin. Because if you think about it, they get their money not because they are great capitalists of the world. <laughs> They're not. Um, they're not. No, oh they goodness. get their. <laughs> I think, as you well know um, from your your previous work, um, they get their money because they have all kinds of illegal deals and kickbacks that are happening. Um, they are part and parcel of uh, the Russian state, giving them various advantages, um, and so they have no incentive to desert Putin because if they do, they lose everything that they have. And so, what we saw happen earlier in 2014, 2015, 2016 is that the oligarchs actually got closer to Putin as a result of the sanctions. And yes, it means that they can't travel to the Riviera. Um, if it continued to go forward, it might mean that their children would have um, uh, less opportunity as well. But what we've actually seen in recent years, especially the past couple of years, is that many of the, the children of Russian oligarchs that had been enrolled in Western uh, educational institutions, for example, no longer are. So um, I, I think that that has been, they've been expecting the sanctions to happen. And so they've had time to prepare for it. And I don't think that's really really the purpose. But so, so what's the strongest I'm sorry. So what so what's what's better than going after the oligarchs? Well, you can still go after the oligarchs but for a different purpose. Um, and so especially if you're able to go after the accounts that some of the oligarchs control but that's really Putin's money, what you're demonstrating is that you have information that might scare Putin about that level of information you have. And I think this is important to keep in mind about what the Biden administration has been doing recently in addition to the sanctions. They've been releasing all of this intelligence about what they know about what Russia is planning and what Russia is going to do next. And if you think about what that means, that's sending the message to Russia, we are in your systems. And if you think about all the discussion that has been in place in the United States about Russian intrusion into American cyber domains in recent years, there's been this fear that if Russia can take our information, that means they can also put backdoors into the system to change the information to, to uh, be engaged in sabotage. And by saying we have this information, we have this information about what Russia is going to do next, and we have this, you know, potentially we have this information about where um, Putin's accounts are actually located and where he gets his money from, that's also a message that not only do we have information that comes from these electronic sources, but maybe we could engage in sabotage. Um, and so I think we, we have to keep that in mind, too, as something that, that might be part of what's happening with the sanctions package. And, and do you think that, that actually gets into Putin's head and causes him to rethink his course? I don't know. And, and you know, there's a, a danger in going too far in that, in that Russia could do a lot to harm um, the U.S. economy right. and U.S. people through its cyber actions. Yeah. Um, the U.S. is, in, in one sense, much more vulnerable to cyber actions than Russia is because we have so much that is connected to cyber, um, much more than Russia does just because of the advanced technology that's in the consumer economy in the United States. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see whether that goes forward. But I think it is sending a message and, and maybe um, causing uh, Putin to re think where the loyalty is among his people and how the U.S. got this access. Is one reason 
for not launching all the sanctions in a maximal front-loaded way, not simply that you want to maintain some deterrence and leverage effect for later, but also a fear of massive cyber retaliation? That is a reason to move slowly. But, you know, I, I think that there is also preparation in the United States and among our allies for the probability that there will be an uptick in Russian cyber attacks. I, I think, I mean, you're right, that that's always something that is um, uh, going to be a block on moving too far forward. And that was something that, for example, kept the Obama administration from putting stronger sanctions on Russia um, at the time of the original takeover of Crimea and the, the starting of the war in eastern Ukraine. But it looks like um, the Biden administration is is more willing to take that risk than the Obama administration was. We've talked about Putin. We've talked about Biden. Can we spend a couple of minutes talking about the quote-unquote loyal opposition in the United States? The kinds of Uh things that I put that in quotes, (laughs) and maybe you can address whether you think it's loyal or not. Statements by, among other people, former President Trump, who seems to be marveling at the intellect and using his word, savvy, of Putin and other folks who are saying, really, the fault is NATO's. I don't know how loud those voices are and how widespread that thinking is on the Republican side, but do you have a reaction to any of that? I think there it, there are more people than just Trump who have that belief. And I think one of the questions that is sort of interesting is why in the world Putin didn't take these actions under the time of the Trump administration, um, because Trump probably would have not have viewed it as a crisis the way the Biden administration is viewing well, it. Well, the reason for that professor, obviously, if you pay attention, is that he was terrified, that that Putin was terrified of Donald Trump, absolutely (laughs) petrified, and that's why no action was taken. Is that not a correct conclusion? If if you're Trump, maybe (laughs) that's what you believe. Yes, I think that's possible. Um, But I think there's another um, part of the loyal opposition that we need to keep in mind, too, which is that there's a widespread feeling among much of the American public. um, I don't know if it's a majority, but at least a significant minority of the American public who does not follow foreign affairs, you know, regularly um, saying, why should we care about Ukraine? If this is going to be harmful to the U.S. economy, what are our interests here? Um, And so I I think, you know, one of the things that Biden has tried to do and that I think is important in general to do is to say that Ukraine is not alone. Ukraine is a um, a liberal democracy that was really has been making great strides forward in doing things that would make it part of the Western community. And if Putin succeeds here, it's not going to stop with Ukraine. So this is not just about an attack on Ukraine. Um, it's also about an attack on the West uh, more broadly and part of Putin's thinking that authoritarian states are in opposition to democratic states. And if he succeeds here, who knows what he might do next? There has been reporting that Vladimir Putin has a kill list, a list of people in Ukraine who need to be assassinated and or disappeared and or something else. And among other folks, activist Garry Kasparov says he believes that that's true. Is there anything to that, you think? Um, it's a reasonable thing to believe might be the case. I mean, we we apparently that that list was released by U.S. intelligence agencies, so it's coming from the U.S. government. It's not coming just from journalists. And that's um, more trying to spook Putin? It's, it may be more trying to spook Putin, but I think that there was also a sense, and there was one representative from the U.S. government who said this, I think, that there was a sense of having a responsibility to protect these people and warn them that they were on that list. But it certainly fits the pattern of how the Putin administration has behaved um, in terms of having, you know, spectacular forms of assassination attempts against those who are against it, um, including in Western Europe. We saw that happen in the United Kingdom, for example, twice. 
you know, we've talked about how much of this was foreseeable and understanding what Putin's motivations are and whether or not we were caught flat-footed or not. But, you know, the Ukrainian people, I understand from reporting, and neither you nor I are on the ground there, but my understanding is that up until very, very recently, the general population of Ukraine didn't really think this was a possibility. Can you explain that? I think there's still a sense uh, among a significant number of Ukrainian observers that maybe all that's going to happen is that Putin will stop with Donetsk and Luhansk. And the evidence that we have available to us suggests that that's not likely to happen, that he's going to continue to move forward beyond that. But I, uh, you know, maybe it's a sense of wishful thinking. Maybe it's a sense of having gotten used to warfare in eastern Ukraine. And so nothing is really surprising to Ukrainians. Um, but at the same time, there has been a lot of evidence that Ukrainians are signing up for, you know, self-defense forces that are civilians, people who are in, you know, the professions, lawyers and doctors and, and teachers, uh, learning how to use weapons and um, thinking about defense forces and, and thinking about what a resistance would look like. Um, and so I think the feeling is mixed. But yeah, I think there, uh, even as of yesterday, there was still some hope among some significant people in Ukraine that Putin would, would stop at the breakaway areas and would not go further. And that hope you think is dwindling? From all of the evidence that we have, uh, from the, the way that the military forces are deployed, from the way that already yesterday Putin started off by saying that he was only interested in supporting the areas where the uh, Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republic, so-called, um, actually had control over territory, to then expanding it later in the evening to say that it was the entire area that they claimed, uh, which would go far beyond the area where the, the battle line currently is. You know, by, by the statements that he's made that Ukraine doesn't have the right to be a sovereign independent state, all of that evidence indicates that he is likely to go further. And so I think we should be prepared for the probability that he will go further, even though who knows? I mean, he's very good at playing tricks. He may decide to stop. Is it possible for Putin or does Putin still think it is possible, which is a different question? Does he still think it's possible to take over the whole of Ukraine bloodlessly? So I think that what um, a lot of observers believe would be the maximum that Putin would do would probably not to be to take to try to take over all of Ukrainian territory because he'd face very, very strong resistance in the western parts of Ukraine in particular. But that it might be that his goal is to um, take over Kiev, which uh, may or may not involve having an actual um, military conventional force takeover of Kiev, but do something to destabilize the government in Kiev so that he could put in a Russian puppet um, who would actually lead Ukraine um, into the Russian orbit. Um, and, but that's effectively, you know, we, that's effectively taking over all of Ukraine. Right? Yeah, it's taking, it's taking over all of Ukraine, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he would have to take it over using conventional military forces. He could do it by a series of demonstration effects on cyber attacks against civilian installations um, that might convince people to stop fighting, for example. Um, we, can, we can think of all kinds of different ways that he might, might approach how, that. How do you assess the performance of the leader of Ukraine, Zelensky, in all this? Uh, you know, he's been in a very difficult position because he had no political experience. His experience, remind people what his experience was. 
He's a comedian. That's what he did for his entire career. That was his profession. He played he played the president in a comedy show. Um, and so he really put himself in this position where he had no background um, to be able to address this. And many of the people that have been his advisors are people he took over from the television station where his comedy show was. And so um, they've been, you know, sort of plunked down into this situation where they had no experience. And then to top it all off, he's been trying to take on recently oligarchs who are extraordinarily powerful. And that has put him in an even weaker position. And then, um, you know, if you think about it, there are also a variety of very strongly nationalist militias in Ukraine who are very much against any concessions to Russia, who have been sort of, you know, banging at his heels, not allowing him to do a very good job of of having freedom for negotiation. Um, and so he's he's really been in an extraordinarily bad circumstance. And so I think if we if we start off by looking at that by having some sympathy for him that he put him himself in this position. Maybe he's done better than people had expected. Um, although he he probably made a major rhetorical blunder a couple of days ago by saying he was going to rethink the Bucharest commitments that were from 1994, where Ukraine agreed to give up its um, ability to acquire nuclear weapons and join the non-proliferation treaty in in uh, in response to security guarantees that came from um, the United States, the the UK, and Russia, um, because it just gave Putin an inroad to say, "Oh, Ukraine's going to develop nuclear weapons yeah. now." They have designs on affecting our security. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say that Putin does that lesser of the two things we just discussed, not a full-throated, you know, full-bore war and physical invasion of, to take over the whole of Ukraine, but basically the takeover of, of Kiev and the installation of a puppet. What does Europe look like after that, if that comes to pass? And, and the post-World War II order that we've become familiar with? Yeah, well, I think, you know, when we talked earlier about whether Putin is rational and reasonable, the one thing that he seems not to have understood is that his actions would create a level of unity between the United States and Europe that we hadn't seen up until that point. And I think the strongest evidence we have that that's going to hold uh, was Germany saying it's it's not going to approve uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I think that came as a surprise to many people, given that in recent weeks, everybody's tried to get Germany to say that, and they wouldn't. And now, with just the, the movement that Putin has made so far, they did come out and say that. And so, you know, I think it might be a, a reestablishment of a Cold War, just with different boundaries than it was uh, before. It would be the, the most threatening to NATO members who are closest to Ukraine. Um, I think uh, one of the concerns we would have would be for the, the so-called Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, especially with what appears to be Russia's military takeover of Belarus in recent weeks. That leaves them more vulnerable than they have been because of the difficulty of NATO moving forces and moving supplies into those territories if Russia should decide to invade them next. So I think this has very serious security consequences for NATO, but I think it is unifying NATO in a way that Putin had not expected. Can you just explain briefly for folks why it's a big deal for Germany to have canceled Nord Stream 2? Yeah, so that has been in the works for many, many years. It is a private, it's a pipeline that would su supplement an existing pipeline. The approval process has been going on for a very long time. You know, it, it bypasses Ukraine, which means that Ukraine doesn't get the taxes or the tariffs that it um, otherwise would get from natural gas going from Russia across to Europe over Ukrainian territory. And Germany has been very firm, both under um, Chancellor Angela Merkel and now under Chancellor Schultz, that that was, you know, something that was continuing to go forward and that they would not come out and say that it was stopping. 
if they actually were to end the pipeline, it would be essentially a seizure of private property. And so there is a, a series of legal maneuvering that Germany would have to go through to seize that pipeline by completely cutting it off. So all that has been said so far by Schultz is that he would not go ahead with the approval process, which I think does not yet cross that legal line. And that's something that um, Constanze Steltzenmuller of uh, the Brookings Institution um, has talked about. She's a German attorney who's at, at Brookings. So going back to the scenario in which Russia takes over at Kiev and installs a puppet. What's next on Putin's list of countries to go into? Um, I think he would probably put into place a very strong economic and military alliance between Belarus, uh, Ukraine, and Russia, um, which may have been what his uh, sort of major goal was all along. It would be not expanding Russian territory, but really um, cementing Russian influence over those two Slavic countries that are very closely connected to Russia in terms of ethnicity and language and history. Um, and so I think that's probably what we would, we would expect to see next. Not beyond that, not even further invasions or annexations? Uh, it would take a lot of effort on Putin's part to do any kind of annexation of anything further. If he wanted to go into another country that's not part of NATO, Georgia is probably the next most obvious candidate. The Russian military is a lot stronger now than it was in 2008 when the original uh, invasion of parts of uh, recognized Georgian territory happened. Russia has military bases in Abkhazia and uh, South Ossetia, which is on recognized Georgian territory, but Russia doesn't recognize recognize it. Um, and so if he were to take another military action immediately, that might be where it would go. And as I said earlier, I think uh, if he wanted to try to take on NATO directly, an attack on the Baltic states would be where he would go. But then at that point, he really is risking, uh, you know, a full retaliation from NATO, including the U.S. nuclear guarantee. I have a question, which is maybe a silly question. And it is, why is this stuff so difficult to analyze, even by very, very smart expert people. I'll give you an example. And I, I'm not a foreign policy expert, but I've been trying to follow this very closely because I think it's a big deal and very important uh, to all Americans and, and people around the world. On Monday, Putin dramatically announces, you know, through a vote, that the, the two regions in Ukraine, Donetsk and, and Luhansk, were independent. And I immediately turned to see the statements of people who I respect and trust on these issues. And I begin seeing some people saying, which was my initial reaction, you know, inexpert reaction, which is that's the setting of a foundation for a pretext for an invasion. And then I saw other very, very smart people, and some people agreed with that. And I saw other very smart people say, oh, this is a great sign. This means that Putin is setting up an off-ramp so he can de-escalate. Those are two very, very dramatically different reactions to a bit of news out of Russia. Do you have a reaction to that? Yeah, it's almost impossible to try to figure out what's happening because all of this decision making is being made by Putin as an individual and perhaps a couple of very close people in his, uh, you know, immediate uh, network. Um, it's an authoritarian state. They don't discuss anything before it actually happens. You know, in the United States, we had so much uh, advanced warning before, for example, the invasion of Iraq. You don't see anything similar to that. So you have to sort of watch what Russia is doing on the ground to try to predict what it's going to do next. Um, but Putin's also 
also a very tricky actor. And as I said at the beginning, he's a former KGB officer. And so he is very good at playing public opinion and at putting forth false narratives to try to confuse people and at keeping people guessing. And he enjoys that. There's a Russian word, hitrist, which is um, sort of cunning, uh, the, the, the underdog coming to the forefront through, through cunning and cleverness. Um, and he sees himself as, as practicing hitrist. And so he, he, he likes keeping us guessing. And unless there is intelligence information that we have not yet heard about, um, there's no way of knowing exactly what he's going to do next. He has set himself the opportunity to do a huge number of things if he wishes. Is one reason that it's hard to figure out what he's doing that he himself has not figured out yet what he's doing? (laughs) That's that's possible. There have been some people who um, have a lot of experience working in Russia who have said that Putin has a reputation for taking decisions at the very last minute, that he has a hard time making up his mind, um, and that he keeps on weighing the pros and cons before he does something. So it is also possible that Putin doesn't know what he's going to do tomorrow. So before I let you go, it turns out I just realized there's one thing we haven't talked about yet. You know what we haven't talked about? What's that? We haven't talked about China. So explain to folks how China figures into all of this. Uh, You know, most experts were predicting that no dramatic action would be taken until the Olympics were over. That happened Sunday. They were right. right. (laughs) (laughs) Totally correct. How does China feel about this? How does Putin weigh his relationship with China? And does he worry about upsetting China going forward? So um, the basic fact is that China matters a lot more to Russia than Russia does to China. China's economic relationship with both the United States and the European Union is like an order of magnitude greater than its economic relationship with Russia. But the same thing is not true in, in counter for Russia. Russia needs China economically, especially if it's facing more Western sanctions. China has, therefore, very mixed motives. It is very happy to take Russian natural resources, minerals, oil and gas. Um, it is very happy to have Russia essentially being a little lapdog that follows along behind China. China has a a strong incentive to make the U.S. look bad, to um, try to say that authoritarian regimes are the future of the world and not democracies. So in that sense, China's kind of happy that Russia is able to get one over on the United States. Um, But at the same time, China has to be more guarded. And what we've seen is China having really sort of mixed messages. So in 2014, it did not come out in favor of the Russian takeover of Crimea. It had has spoken out recently against NATO enlargement. It spoke out today, once again, against sanctions, saying that sanctions are not a good idea because it doesn't like the idea of sanctions against it. But it also has said that it sees Ukraine as a sovereign state and that it supports the territorial integrity of sovereign states. And so it's it's got a mixed message and it's, it's not likely to become the kind of ally that Putin would like it to become, um, even though it's probably very glad that uh, Putin's trying to give the West and the United States a black eye. Is the relationship between Russia and China such, and I know it's asymmetrical, but is it such that if if China had determined or were to determine that it's just not good in the long term for China, the takeover of Ukraine, that they would have the power and ability to turn Putin back? Well, you know, it would be on economics. And what we saw happen after the sanctions went into effect the last time around is that the only Chinese entity that continued to support Russia and invest in Russia was the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund because it has no particular reason to fear Western sanctions. It doesn't have dealings with the West. Whereas even state-owned Chinese banks were significantly afraid of U.S. banking sanctions in particular, that they did not go ahead with investments in Russia. So that's already sending a message about where Chinese power 
power lies and what the limits of Chinese power are. But yeah, I think you're right that if the Chinese sovereign bank um, had decided that it never didn't want anything more to do with Russia and that it was going to cut off its relationship with Russia, if China decided it was going to cut off its, um, it, it gets a lot of uh, weapons from Russia, if it decided to cut off those arms sales, then China could have had a big effect on making Putin think twice. I, I don't think China did that. Yeah. It doesn't look like they're going to do it yeah. in the coming hours and days. Um, I'm going to let you go because I know you're in high demand okay. as an expert on all these issues. But you know, as we watch the news and see the developments over the coming days and weeks, what are the kinds of things that you think people who are watching should be looking for as clues to whether it's going one way or another way? Um, the, the most important thing to watch is where those Russian troops go. And it's been kind of confusing up until now because the people who are the pro-Russian fighters in eastern Ukraine have had Russian weaponry. And so you have to be a real military expert to be able to know whether a particular tank or armored personnel carrier actually belongs to Russia or actually has already been in eastern Ukrainian territory up until now. But I think that's the most important thing to watch is um, how far forward the troops and the weapons weapons that are definitely Russian troops and Russian weapons, how far they advance. And if they advance beyond the current line of control, beyond that current uh, standoff line in the war that's been happening in eastern Ukraine since 2014, that'll be a very strong sense that Putin is not going to stop. Got it. And do you, uh, as a final question, care to weigh in on the domestic political environment and what the implications are for Biden, depending on how it goes in Ukraine? Um, I guess my sense is that this is far enough away, even from the midterm elections, and that people do not tend to vote on foreign policy issues. They tend to vote on economic and um, immediate sort of family interest issues. I don't think that this would cause people who are against Biden for other reasons to turn around and support him. But I think what it might do um, if Biden is able to maintain the strength of the Western alliance and is able to show that this is a foreign policy win for him, not because it stops Russia, but just because the alliance holds and that this is sort of um, an indication that the West is back again. I think it might undo um, some of the bad effects that the uh, problems from the Afghanistan withdrawal had on people assessing his foreign policy uh, legacy. I said that was the last question, but I lied because your your answer (laughs) prompted just one one more question. What What would a political win look like? What would a reasonable and realistic political win in Ukraine look like for Biden going forward? Oh. Well, I mean, a true win would be having Russia stop before it goes much further or, you know, stop at the eastern Ukraine level without having to take over the, the capital of Ukraine, without taking over Kiev. I'm not sure that Biden actually has any control over that, though. That's really Putin's decision. Right. But is anything beyond that a political loss? Um. It would be a terrible political loss if the European alliance doesn't hold together in putting together sanctions, if Putin succeeds in convincing them that they need Russian natural gas so much that they do not hold together on their sanctions policy. Uh, We've seen threats of that coming from Russia, that um, uh, Europe should be prepared for its gas prices to skyrocket. It's still winter. The worst of winter is over, but there is still winter. It's it's pretty clear that liquid natural gas can help with the gas supplies in Europe, but Qatar has said that it cannot possibly replace. Um, the Russian supplies if Russia should choose to cut off that pipeline. I don't think it's very likely that Russia would completely cut off the pipeline because that would hurt Gazprom. It would hurt the Russian interests as much as it would hurt the European interests. But I think that's the disaster scenario, that Russia convinces Europe not to hold together with the United States and Europe caves. 
Okay. I am now going to let you go. I, re- I, release, okay. I release you, Professor. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for your, for your voice and your analysis and for making time at the last minute. Thank you for inviting me. We'll all be following it very closely. Professor Kimberly Martin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Kimberly Martin. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Doss. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.